Geocentrism is the idea that the Earth is at the center of the universe. Widely believed and accepted for over 1,500 years, this theory was later replaced with the heliocentric model which we're all familiar with today. But for that brief blip of human existence, it was understood that our planet and the occupants of it were at the center of everything. And we were the entire focal point for all meaning. While certainly much more complex, I like to believe that this moment in time tipped off human beings' quest to do everything in their power to make an impact, to pull that center of the universe back to them through great works. With enough art, screenplays, businesses, and the like, with enough success, we could become the center of the universe again. Our egos became both a weapon and something that could be weaponized. Geocentric became egocentric. Few yield the power of the ego more in our world of subscriptions like Nathan Lotka, whose confidence and intellect have given him the ability to weaponize media to draw attention to his products and content. How do you get people to notice you like Lotka? Sure, you can buy ads and distribution channels, especially the traditional ones, or you can try to do some guerrilla marketing. Yet there's a much more efficient, but much harder to learn way, and that comes down to leverage, which requires determination and unabashed confidence. Put another way, in order to generate interest in modern times, you're going to have to go full lot. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we showcase the people in the trenches actually doing the work. On today's episode, Nathan Latka, the founder of Latka Agency, as well as a bunch of other things, shares his knowledge on generating interest. He shares how you earn the right to educate, weaponizing your ego, generating demand, the characteristics to look for in a successful founder, and finally, the key to leverage. I know a lot of people know you from the podcast, Latka Magazine, whole host of different things. How did you get here? Like, why this over being a firefighter, over a doctor, whatever you wanted to be? Like, why this? It wasn't intentional. I mean, I think I would probably be a much better, like, male version of Megyn Kelly or something. Uh, uh, but, uh, I mean, look, I had my first software company in college because I was studying architecture. Then realized there was no money to be made in architecture. This was like, you guys remember 2008, nobody was hiring architects. Like, the first thing you stopped doing was spending money building stuff. So there was no work. And I'm like, I need to start selling stuff online. And so I started building custom Facebook fan pages, doing professional services work, hated the nature of professional service. You guys, anyone do professional services at the start of your SaaS company? Yeah, they, you still do some. You get these clients, like you finish a design and you launch the page like a year ago and they email you today and are like, the blue tints we would like to update and we would like it to be a little deeper, darker blue. And you're like, bro, we finished your contract like a year ago. This isn't like an endless thing. You just get to ask for design changes for three years. So I moved out of professional services, built the SaaS product and I just loved SaaS. And so that's how I got into it. And how did you bridge? So built some sales software, correct? What was that product? I built a software called Heyo, H-E-Y-O. So are you guys familiar with like Weebly or Wix or Squarespace? So, so drag and drop websites, we basically built a tool for drag and drop Facebook apps back in the day. So we helped people launch about 3 million Facebook apps back in 2009 mm-hmm. and 2010. Uh, and to, to my knowledge, none of, their, none of the data that those apps were collecting was ever compromised. So we were the good app builders from what I, from what I know. So you're the reason Trump got elected. Is that what you're you trying to You had to go there. No, Everyone goes there. That was All not, conversations go to Trump or not Brexit, me. given enough time. 
And then from Heyo, sold that or did that kind of burn up a little bit with the Facebook yeah, app? Yeah, so so Heyo, I made a major mistake. So how many of you guys have raised raised capital for either a current company or a prior company? Just raise your hand out of curiosity. Yeah, you raised some. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I made a big mistake, right? I grew the company in the dorm room to about $45,000 a month in revenue. Uh, I mean, I was living like a freaking boss, right? And then these investors reached out and were like, we'd love to invest in your company. And I said, well, what the heck does invest in your company mean? You know, they don't teach you how to raise money in college, right? It's, this is like, they should teach this shit. So, and long story short is they said, we'll give you the X valuation, we'll put in money. And I was like, wow, this feels really good. I've got a billionaire that wants to put 2 million bucks in the company, I'll take it. So we raised two and a half million bucks at a, at a $10.5 million post money valuation. But the problem with that was four months after that, we got a $6.5 million acquisition offer from iContact. And I would, uh, I mean, own 70% of the company. I would have gotten like, I mean, that's goodwill for like a 21 year old, but I couldn't take it because the board seat and the investors, they want you to go build a, you know, 10X whatever they put in. So on page 243 in the book, I mean, you see this LOI where I basically couldn't take it. So it was a massive mistake to raise capital. So long story short is I couldn't sell for 6.5, took the debt and basically over a five year period, the business slowly declined 5% year over year. I was paying myself $120,000 salary in college. So the way I built wealth on my first company was honestly the salary I, I paid myself for and, and all the money I took before I raised capital. But it was a massive mistake to raise capital. And that's a lot of why I do what I do is to help founders understand, you know, there are two founders, ones that chase TechCrunch headlines and the ones that no one knows about, but get really rich. And I'd rather feature the folks that are bootstrapped and get really rich. Raising money isn't always bad, or is it always bad? No, 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 it's, it's definitely yeah. not so always bad. So what what's it's the framework through which you should or shouldn't raise? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that, right? Um, you could also argue an ups, even though the business failed that I, that I had. hey oh, in other words, when I sold the company, we had $1.1 million in the bank. I sold a $60,000 a month company for $300,000 to Vodago in a flash sale in 2015. So we had 1.5 million in the bank, which I returned to investors who had put in 2.5. So I give about 65 cents back on the dollar, shut it down, moved on. The ability for me to say that I sold a company and I had raised capital, a lot of the angels that got washed out on that waterfall on the sale were like, well, crap, we've put 500 grand into Nathan's entrepreneur education. <laughs> we don't want to miss out. We know it's going to be a hit. We don't want to miss out. So Nathan, whenever you want to do the next thing, make sure you tell us. So there was still some upside to raising capital, even though financially it wasn't a win for everyone. Do you have another product in there or what, what's bridging from 2015 to 2019? Now it's been all luck all the time, writing books, all that kind of stuff. Well, my, the number one way I drove sales at Heyo uh, was webinars. Do any of you guys use webinars to close sales in the company? Yeah, you fill them up, get affiliate partners. Yeah, drive some sales. And then like what I love to do is at like minute 45. Now we didn't have Zoom back in the day. I mean, not that back in the day, okay? You're I'm not like 30 years. Yeah, Let's relax. Say, back Come in the now. day. Uh, but we, we only had GoToWebinar. And so at minute 45 in the webinar, I would unmute someone who I saw buy, like, cause I'd put up the pricing. I'd say, go buy right now. And it'd be like, Samantha just bought for 30 bucks a month. And I'd unmute Samantha and say, Samantha, I see on the back end of PayPal, you just purchased. Why'd you buy? And she says, well, Nathan, I, I don't know what I just bought, but the energy was incredible. Like, where can I buy again? And you'd see more sales come in. And so I'd leave Samantha unmuted as long as sales were going up. And then when they flattened, I'd say, oh, lost Samantha. Jamie, you just bought, why'd you buy? And it was like, what are those shows, like those cable networks where like they sell stuff real time? That's what it felt like, but selling software. So my point is I was really good like live, like media. So all my investors were like, you need to do something related to media next. And that's when I launched the podcast in 2015. But 
the podcast goal isn't necessarily views or just the recordings anymore. Like it's it's moved on to that. Like you've evolved into you know as as we've talked about wanting to be the most you know the the most connected man in B two B SaaS. What's the new play or what's like what's the value there now beyond just like more content that's being pushed out? The podcast, you know, we launched it in 2015. It's just passed 10 million downloads. From all I know, I think it's the largest podcast for, you know, focused on B2B SaaS in terms of just pure raw number of downloads. And so we'll get people like that want to come on to like make a product announcement or things because they've come on before and just gotten an amazing amount of new customers or they got private equity firms getting a bidding war because they all listen to the show. So the show does well, but ultimately it's just an excuse to, it's the same way your sales reps like do demos, except my demos, there's millions of people listening and you also get exposure even if you don't buy my product. So it's just an excuse to connect to more founders. And uh, what I've started doing uh, is taking these audio files. Any of you guys know what a spectrograph is? Any like quant folks? No, 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 no one? All right, spectrographs are basically, you can generate it. We generate about a million images per 20 minute audio file. And we've trained it to know when the CEO says, we have 350 customers or we have 20 million in ARR and it will auto plot those data points connected to the voice on getlacka.com in a massive Excel sheet. So if you click a data point, it will go to the point when the CEO says that number. And to your point now, we essentially sell that data uh, to private equity firms, to VC firms, to venture debt firms and to heads of corporate BD looking to do mock roll-up strategies. And I give it to CEOs for free. What's something you struggled with in your career so far that you overcame and how did you overcome it? This is where I bullshit about something that I'm actually really good at, but I frame it as a failure to no, answer your question. No bullshit, please. There's I mean, enough, there's enough look, luck out there. Look, my, I mean, I say this publicly, I have no problem saying it. Like I have a really big, beautiful ego. And, uh, when it's it, beautiful though, or it's, is it, when it's used know. the right way, it's beautiful, but yeah, I surround yeah. myself with people that I hope keep me in check when it's used in not good ways. Or folks like me who try to defend you. Yeah. yeah I mean, you don't have to, I don't even pay you for that. I mean, it's I great. I'll take the free labor. It's funny. I am. I, my funnel is basically people being like, Nathan's an asshole, isn't he? And I'm like, no, you just have to understand him and all this other stuff. What I've learned I'm about... I'm a great defender of Latka. Which I appreciate. This is great. You don't have to. I mean, I wish you'd shit on me. You know, it's way easier... I feel easier. like he wants me to stop doing it, too. Because if, I feel like you are you think I'm taking away from your brand when I do that. Yeah, and when you make me look nice, it's <laughs> not as good. That's okay. Uh, but I will tell you this, and this is, a real, this is a real thing. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of money on Facebook ads trying to convince everybody what they are to make people love you. It's way cheaper to get people to hate you. And haters still buy, Right? Uh, so like you should do an exercise and think about what you're definitely not and try marketing that and see people that like also hate that thing that you don't want to be. And it's actually sometimes way cheaper than the thing you're trying to convince everyone that you are. My nightmare is if people had no opinion of me, I'm winning big time. If people either hate me or love me, because no matter what they're talking about me, and if I can create a situation where there's someone, there's a lover and a hater and they just explore on each other, but they're debating me like I win. So that's, that's the art. Who's a SaaS CEO or a SaaS founder who has used that in any, in any fashion? Because if you look I at... Like, I don't know any examples. I don't know any examples. Yeah, you got like Benioff who like, yeah, he'll do things where some people will not like it from a tactical perspective, but he's always let you know, love me, love me, you know, and he's got a huge ego as well. Benioff will do things where you'll look at it and you'd be like, oh, you're a pure tactician. But you didn't answer my question. So yeah, what's, well, sorry, what what's was one it? of the things that you struggled with that you've, you've overcome? And give me no bullshit. Don't give me this like, 
I had to moisturize more or something like that. Like, tell me, tell me the truth. Here's the thing about that, right? Um, I think there are kinds of people in the world where they look for anything going bad in, a, in their day and they use that to then like validate all the shit that's happening to them. Like you wake up and you feel bad. So you find something to blame it on. It's like this victim mentality. Like one, one of my strengths, honestly, is like, this is why I don't care about bad press. I am so confident in my ability to get my message across and who I actually am that I can spin anything to be favorable to me if people actually spend time with me and meet me in person. So in terms of like things I've struggled with, I mean, the hardest thing I've struggled with honestly was in the SaaS context was like a board, the board member that came on that put in the 2 million. It was a biotech investor, a billionaire. He wanted a board seat and every board meeting was me spending time trying to educate him on what SaaS meant. It was the stupidest thing. I mean, I don't know if you're looking for like a business example or a personal example, no, but- No, it's personal. Like you as a human. I mean, I just, there's not a bunch that I struggle with as a human. I mean, I'm a white Ever? man born in North America with like pretty attractive, quite honestly, you know. Let's relax there a second, all right? Come on now. You could call a spade a spade, right? I mean, if I said, I, I mean, if I had other assets, I'd use those assets. But if you have an asset, you use it. For anyone who doesn't understand Nathan's asset, please go to his Instagram. Um, it is a thirst trap basically every other day. It sells um, a lot of books. Sells to the Cougars, correct? Cougars, Cougars, there's a, Cougars love my book. Now, what's kind of fascinating for about you that I think is good is is that basically all press is good press. How does a company who maybe doesn't want to go, let's say full Latka, let's let's make that a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone that can't go full Latka because of PR implications, these types of things, like what are the what are some of the ways that they can use these particular tactics? Well, you have to figure out what you don't believe in. Like you have to have an enemy, right? Like you have your company because it didn't exist before or you're doing something opposite of what someone else was doing. And you a lot of people won't verbalize that. All I'm encouraging people to do is you really should verbalize what you are not, like what you are against versus only what you are for and trying to convince people to love you. Um, so that's how you would go all in on the if you want to go full Latka as a SaaS company. When you look at a SaaS company in particular, you look at the founders, like, are you doing any investing? Are you working with any private equity companies? Like, wh what's the world look like in terms of, like, your future, in terms of what you're trying to do as a brand and ultimately as someone who is gaining this knowledge, gaining this pattern recognition in this world of B2B SaaS? So I got had a founder call on my show about two years ago, said afterwards, Nathan, I got, like, 14 emails from investors and private equity firms wanting to buy me because that this CEO said on the show you know, we would consider raising X amount or selling for X amount. It drove him a ton of deal flow and he wanted my help understanding how to manage the deal flow. So I started doing that deal and I've done many deals. I mean, over the past three years, I probably helped, you know, over 300, 400 million dollars worth of deals kind of go down. And I don't formalize that at all, but, you know, I end up getting all kinds of, you know, they write me a check afterwards and say thanks for helping or things like that. But, you know, I've essentially formalized that where, I have a lot of private equity firms, VC firms, venture debt firms, corporate uh, heads of BD that, that will pay me for deal flow for a specific cohort of founders. So now a founder comes on and they say, you know, I am a, okay, here's a good example. Uh, the episode three days ago was a company called Questions Pro uh, doing 20 million bucks in ARR, bootstrap, 3 million bucks in annual EBITDA. He wants to either do a secondary and sell 60% of the company right, for $50 million or the full company for $100 million, which actually isn't a crazy price, right, at 20 million bucks growing 35% year over year for a bootstrap company. So I know when that episode goes live, which it's not going to go live in for another year and a half, it'll be sold by then. Uh, but that's a deal I know I can help him get a bidding war going on. So I'm now helping him get a great bidding war going on that. I'll help him get a great price for it. Um, and that's an example of kind of how I'm using the database to, you know, make money, but also help the founders. When 
you think about actually getting that information though, because you, you have a little bit of that reputation where, you know, when I was on it, I, I knew you were going to ask these questions. I was prepared for it. I knew what I was going to say, what I wasn't going to say, et cetera. What Folks, were the stuff you weren't going to say? Uh, there wasn't really, I mean, there really wasn't anything. It was just more like being prepared, right? You have a lot of people who know of this style and still go on the show and then all of a sudden go, oh, I didn't know, right? So how do you like keep pressing through that and keep getting folks on the show? Is it those folks who clearly don't care or clearly kind of put off by it just aren't going to come? Is it something where you still can get them on and, and you like, you're never going to give kids gloves, but maybe you ask in different ways? Like, tell us a little bit about that style to like keep the brand while managing the you know, the folks who are giving you maybe a little bit of, not a bad reputation, but are giving you a reputation of maybe not being the teddy bear, as, as we mentioned before. Yeah, so the, the, the podcast, getting guests is not a problem. We, we have already done and recorded episodes to the end of 2022. So if I died right now because you asked me like a really tough question, I just fall off and crack my head. You're going to get Nathan Lack of Goodness every day through the end of 2022. So what I do is if I recorded, you know, 30 episodes today, everyone automatically gets an email that says, hey, great interview, but there's a wait list. We can't go live with it until the end of 2022. However, if you want to get moved up to next month, just introduce me to three of your SaaS founders in your city that you feel like don't get enough press. So I turn one into three. So my viral coefficient in terms of booking these meetings is like 2.2. Like I mean, it's really high. So my wait list is really, really, really long. When you look at all the B2B SaaS companies you've spoken with and all the ones that you've seen data on, what are we screwing up? Like, what aren't we doing well? What are, we, what are we not focused on? Why are some companies growing? Why are some companies not? I know you've talked and published a lot about this, but like, what would you say are the top like three to five things that like we just aren't doing right? I don't necessarily know that I'm in a good position to say what we're doing right or wrong because I've actually never built a company bigger than 1.5 million bucks in ARR, right? So I've actually never done it. What I can tell you is I think I'm really good at pattern recognition. So when you interview 3,000 of these folks, you start to pick up on some trends. So I'll talk maybe to one or two of those trends real quick. The first is I'm seeing the most highly valued SaaS companies right now are the ones that have a pure play SaaS platform to start with, but they also have some form of they are processing the receipts at the salon or they are a back office solution or something like that. And they, they're now, you know, every transaction that goes through your platform, there's 300 BIPs up for grabs. Visa is going to take 200. The rest, the 100 gets split somewhere. Why not you take that as the SaaS company? So uh, actually, Felix went through 500 startups. What well, back office, right? Yeah, back great model of this, right? He's now processing. It's a SaaS play, pure play SaaS play. Um, but he's now taking a SaaS model plus percent of GMV, and he's scaling very quickly. The stickiness is there. And so that's a business model that everyone should think about. There's a lot of e-commerce tools that are only GMV, right? We'll take 2% of GMV. Well, they should start, they should go on a SaaS model. A version there would be like Printful, right? The flip side of that, a lot of great SaaS companies. And by the way, if you want to buy a company, you should go buy one of these companies that are only SaaS, but do a lot of volume. You just add a GMV model on top of them. So that's one business model really taking off. The other is IoT plus SaaS. And the big mistake I'm seeing with these folks that are doing IoT plus SaaS is they're still trying to make margin on the hardware. So an example of this would be someone that sells an IoT device to farmers that needs to measure like the wheat height in the barrel to understand how the wheat delivery or corn delivery people, how much should they should deliver. You sell the farmer a $99 IoT device to put in the barrel. And a lot of these firms are still trying to mark that up to 150 bucks and make margin there when really what you should do is go raise, this is the perfect time to raise capital, raise capital to fund the hardware play to get distribution. 
because the lock-in, the net revenue retention on the backside of an IoT sale is through the roof. No farmer is going to churn from you if they have an IoT device that requires software on the back end. So IoT plus software is another big trend I see. By the way, I mean, I should pull some knowledge out of YouTube. I mean, are you seeing any yeah. trends like this people aren't taking advantage of? Uh, GMV, some sort of getting as close to the money as possible, especially in B2B SaaS, is exactly what you need to do. You're seeing a lot of the major companies like Fortune 2000 that had pure SaaS in the first, or really the second wave of SaaS, now looking for opportunities to basically copy Shopify and get somehow some share of that revenue flowing through the product or diverting basically revenue to go through the product. Um, so we're seeing that a lot. So that's where Stripe has actually been really, really smart where they have, well, I don't know if they're partnering or people are trying to partner with them because Stripe's got a, obviously a huge cachet at this point, but there's a lot of B2B hardcore marketing automation companies, sales automation, CRM companies that are basically trying to partner up with payment folks, get payments to flow more through their products and therefore cut, you know, take the split basically half with Stripe, half with, you know, a $500 million, you know, marketing automation company. The other thing that I think that's really kind of fascinating with 3,000 interviews of B2B SaaS founders um, and some execs, not just like founders, what, what are the archetypes that you see? Because Well, I love ex-Israeli defense. I mean, by yeah. far the richest, smartest, wealthiest killers are ex-Israeli defense. I mean, yeah. there are real personalities where you will get a higher valuation just because of what your background is. And an ex-Israeli defense by far is the hottest right now. Uh, you look at Roy Mann. Uh, at Monday, uh, there, there's a, I'm gonna try. I was gonna try and name a bunch off the top of my head. There's a lot of them that are just killing it. You maybe know, you maybe know some as well. But yeah, and and so I always ask, like that archetype is when they come on the show, they are the kind of person where it says the bio when you're registering for the show. They'll put like a one word, like it says, "What's your 50 word bio?" They'll say founder. I'm like, well, no shit. Like I know you're the founder of the company. You put your domain. But the, that that is a signal to me. Like those CEOs when they come on, the way I get the most out of them they actually really respect you when you hit them really hard. They don't like the, oh, you're amazing. Oh, you've scaled. Tell me about your biggest failure that's actually a success in a mask. Like, they like to be like, Roy, listen, you're growing like crazy, but you're sending 60 million bucks a year on Facebook ads. Like, what if Facebook shuts you off? Like, how, how do you survive that threat? Or your net revenue retention is only 107%. You know, world class is 130. Why aren't you upselling more? Like, you got, you got to hit them hard. You know, there's other people that, will in that bio, it'll be like, I asked for 50 words and they'll give me 400. And these are people that feel like they have to validate themselves with me before they even get on the show. They, they're trying to feel a vulnerability. So those guys and gals you don't want to attack. You want to build them up first, then ask questions. This is some spy shit here, by the way, but it's important. Been there, done that. So I know, I know you've been there, done that. <laughs> I'm serious though. Like I, I mean, yeah. I've taken classes with former spies to figure out how do you get the most information out of someone in 15 minutes. And this is one of the reasons the podcast does so well. Going back to archetypes, like if you had to come up with like a bit of a framework or understanding, like, hey, these are the X types of founders. Like obviously, ex-Israeli defense is interesting. I think similar archetype, Argentinians, Chinese founders. Like again, this is a very like you know country-based way to kind of break these things up. But I think they're very very similar. If we take a step back, maybe from that, like. You just describe someone who's like straight to the point, like no bullshit. Are those folks a little bit more successful? Are they, you know, at least more, you know, more successful than folks who are a little bit more on the fluffy side, let's say? Sorry, I don't think it's just that they're directing to the point, but you have to look at, you have to look at people's upbringing, right? So the geopolitical nature of growing up in Israel is one where your back is quite literally always against the wall. You have to understand this about people, right? So 
you know, when I'm investing in a company or someone's, or someone's asking me, Nathan, should I invest in this company? It would be a due diligence. And they're asking me numbers questions. I mean, I will try and get a better understanding of like the culture, like what is in the DNA of these people when they grew up, right? Um, and that's, I think, a better indicator of are they going to be successful than anything else. Are there any patterns there? People that feel like they always have a chip on their shoulder, right? They always have something to prove. You see this when a company, like you buy a company and you try and keep the founders on with golden handcuffs or a big earnout. It's very hard to motivate someone after you make them rich, right? So like you always want them to have something to prove. Always ask the question, you know, um, if you were got an acquisition offer from Salesforce for X amount of money and you went home and told your spouse tonight, would they divorce you if you said no? Right. So you get a real quick understanding of like how influential is the spouse in the situation? Are they supportive of the risks? You have to understand their, their personality. What should folks look for in terms of like not who they should not work for? What characteristics? I mean, you can name names if you want as well, but I don't think you're going to. Who they should not. So give me more context. Like if I'm an executive or I'm looking for a company to work for mm-hmm. and I'm like talking to the founder, like talking to the CEO, like what are those characteristics that are like, oh, I should run away and go to a different company because this, this CEO or this founder has, has these personality traits? Well, I mean, I hate saying it like this, but like shitty CEOs can be replaced pretty easily, right? So I think, I mean, I would be asking questions more about like what's my personal opportunity cost, right? When I sold Heyo, Vodigo wanted to, I mean, I was 24, 25. They offered me a quarter million dollar salary to stay on. I mean, I was sweating when I turned that thing down, but I knew that your 20s are your most valuable years of your life no kids, no responsibility, no debt because I dropped out of college. Like I need to be taking big risks and 250 was devaluing me. So that question is very personal for everyone. And what I would just encourage anyone to do is make sure you understand like your true opportunity cost. People don't calculate this in their lives, but wherever you are in your life, try and calculate your opportunity cost and make sure you value yourself at what you're worth times two or three. And, and go for it that way. So if I'm an executive with three kids, a mortgage that I can barely afford, I can't take a lot of risk. I'm looking for a safer company that's maybe about to go public. I'd be looking at like joining like a, a gain site or a ping identity or a Freshworks or a Braze. If I was, you know, married with a, a spouse that could travel with me, but no kids and I could kind of afford to take a risk and I've got six months of savings in the bank, I'd go and try and find a startup founder who has strengths that I don't have and, and get in on the bottom floor with them. What would you say is the single highest impact thing you could do to set myself up for success in the future? You should build your own distribution channel and then start selling other people's products via affiliate links. And when you start becoming a big enough affiliate for someone, they're going to want to bring you in full time, right? The, the alternative is you're going to be pitching yourself to CEOs yeah. going, I swear I'm a good salesperson. Like, I promise I can sell your product. Like, let me be like, let me come in, et cetera. And it just build your own leverage. Because remember, let's say you didn't go work for a company, but you still have your podcast, magazine, Facebook TV, like whatever, your, your distribution channel. You will have that the rest of your life. And your biggest asset is compound interest on your time. And so owning distribution channels is actually the biggest force multiplier over the rest of your 80-year life. And I'd also say go try and work with people that are younger than you because relationships also compound over time. So if you meet a bunch of people that are 17, 18, 19, right, hanging out on, you know, Y Combinator and Product Hunt and get with them, you've got a 90-year compounding relationship versus going and working with like a 70-year-old founder. You might only have like a 20-year 
right time frame to compound the relationship. Yeah, you know? go be an affiliate that stage. no one likes and takes a lot of time to understand. Like it takes so much time to understand affiliate marketing. It's not just like cool. Just build a distribution channel. It's not difficult. Cool. Yeah, just build a 10 million podcast download distribution did, channel. All you listen. Here's how you do it. It's very simple. It's not interview three thousand people. That's all you have to do. No, you don't. All you have to do is very simple. Any of you can copy this. You go interview twenty people that you want to work for. Okay. Now you're going to go, well, I have no downloads on my podcast. Why would they go on my podcast? You say, Doesn't matter. you sit up nice and tall in your chair or on your Zoom call. You look very fancy. You have your tie up here, your boxers down here, right? It's fine. I'll see how this up. You say, listen, I will have a million downloads by the end of the summer. Do you want to be one of the first episodes? Okay, what they're going to hear is he has a million downloads because you said it so confidently. They will not doubt that you will hustle your way to a million downloads. So that's what I did. You record 60 episodes. Then you email them all before launch and you say, I'm only launching with 10 episodes. And it's gonna be the first 10 of you that reply that say you will email your lists your episode. All right? so that's what I launched with on day one with no downloads. I had 3.4 million emails. So not other people's money, other people's emails, right, for me. I used their asset to grow my own asset. And you know what, those other 50 interviews, four years later are still waiting to be published. What's really, really important what he just described is listen how much leverage thinking just took place. Basically figure out how to get the folks on figure out how to get the best distribution. How do you use the energy you're already using to get more energy out? Thinking and figuring out how to think like that, I think that's the number one thing that you can figure out in your early days, basically because that's gonna actually compound over time. I mean, once I kind of unlocked, I did this because you know I went to the university, I went to on a debate scholarship. Then I worked at the NSA and basically got taught how to think this way. But that's the type of stuff and you might not necessarily you know, uh, appreciate some of the tactics that he just described, but there's no doubt in our minds that we can't, we, we couldn't say that Latka isn't logical or isn't finding leverage when you think about that type of a tactic. You can also buy distribution channels, right? So you just write this down in your notebook, like page 196 on my book, it's for free right out there on a stand. But on page 196, um, I, I go through buying distribution channels. So these are things like buy Chrome extensions with lots of downloads that get lots of impressions monthly. But when you look on the Chrome store and you see the last updated date from the developer was over a year ago, it means it a side project they don't care about, you can probably buy that for like less than 100, 200 bucks. I, I walked through the emails I used to buy those kinds of companies back three, four years ago. You can go to a company, of a site called paved.com, like paving a road. Think of this almost like um, Google AdSense for email lists. It's a big director of email lists where you can buy placement in those lists. And so then you learn who the big influencers are. You go interview them for free and then ask them to email their list to your episode, which then you obviously get for free. But the point is the inventory is there. So yeah, there's a couple of those as well. Um, I think heavy bit was another one where you can actually see the impressions on newsletters and then some people will publish these things and you can kind of basically mark that up as your target list. You can get leverage here though without doing it. It's like people ask like how I got a book deal at 27 and it was, you know, multi six figure advance on the book deal. And I, it was very simple what I did. People don't talk about Tony Robbins. Okay. But when you look at money or you look at Tim Ferriss, right? Tools of Titans. This wasn't just like he came up with an idea to put 300 individual stories in there. Okay. You, you it's pay to play. I mean, whether it's an affiliate link he has in the company or he's on the cap table or they just paid a sponsor fee. I mean, I pre-sold about, uh, about I want to say it was about $200,000 worth of the book by selling book sponsorships. And all I would do is say, hey, there's going to be three pages on where startups should buy their domain name. I'd email GoDaddy and I'd email Bluehost and say, I'm only putting one of you in the book. You both do the same damn thing. So who wants to pay more? Thanks so much to Nathan with his help. Now we have the tools it takes to generate interest around ourselves and our products. We talked about how you earn the right to educate, weaponizing your ego, generating demand, the characteristics to look for in a successful founder, and of course, 
the key to leverage. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Thank you.